Okay, let's get this started. Hi, and welcome to Talking American Studies. My name is Verena Adamick. And my name is Anja Sönmez. And we are both situated at the University of Potsdam. As you know, this podcast is for all American studies scholars and enthusiasts out there. And you also know that our focus lies on research done in Germany. Today, however, we shall leave these restrictions behind and turn our attention outward, or rather upward, leaving earthbound academia and move on to another planet, Mars. Maybe you are listening in because your imagination has already stepped onto the red planet. You might be following NASA's Mars rover Perseverance on Twitter, or you may have read The Martian by Andy Weir, or perhaps at one point or another looked at Edgar Rice Burroughs' uh, Princess of Mars and the rest of the series, or watched the 2012 Disney rendition of it. Or you might stay up to date on news regarding ongoing space missions. If so, you are definitely not alone. National Geographic suggested this February that Mars has become an obsession, asking, why are people so dang obsessed with Mars? The answer, according to the article, may be, and I quote, witheringly simple. Even as our picture of it has sharpened over time, we can still easily envision ourselves there, building a new home beyond the confines of Earth. It's just blank enough, Catherine Denning, a York University anthropologist, says. Now, the statement probably sets off your critical alarm bells. A new home on a blank surface beyond previous confines? European colonial language of an empty land, a Terranilius is echoed suspiciously well. If you are a peruser of science fiction, you may notice that most kind of sort of good place utopias are set in outer space, not on good old Earth. And with that, we have already ventured well into our guest's territory. Dr. Jens Temmen is currently working at the Heinrich Heine Universität Düsseldorf. His first book, The Territorialities of U.S. Imperialisms, came out last year, and now he is firmly committed to his second big project, Writing Life on Mars. Let's hear how he moved from writing about 19th century concepts of territories in indigenous writing and legal texts to outer space. Does it feel different? Uh, working on your postdoc as opposed to uh, writing a PhD? This is a very individual perspective, obviously, that I have here. Um, that transition, the PhD itself and also the postdoc and also the, the transition from PhD to postdoc is, of course, a very individual experience for me personally. At first, it felt like nothing really changed. I mean, for a brief moment, there's the excitement of, yes, I'm done. Then after that, the PhD felt like a ticket to enter the next round in a way, right? You get your, your ticket stuff, you can keep that, but kind of the game starts anew in that sense. You have a little more liberty, you have a little more resp responsibility, I guess, but at first it didn't really change that much all by itself. And I was also very lucky in that sense that I got some good advice from people, both in context of university, but also from friends that told me to let the PhD sink in for a while and then actively try to change your mindset if possible. So. The habilitation suggests that you need to prove your abilities all over again. 
But the PhD kind of says you don't. You have the expertise and authority. You've proven that, right? And you have to kind of wrap your head around the fact that these two things happen at the same time. And uh, that's something that was good advice for me, right? To have to kind of look at that disparity, if you will. And I was also given the advice to to think about the Habil not as a second PhD project. It should be as sound and solid as the first book. It should aim to make a difference, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a reformation, a revolution, kind of revolutionizing the whole field yet again, as you always try to do with your PhD. And of course, then there's, for everyone in American studies in Germany at least, the course of, of basically the change of subject, which is challenging, right? You have to kind of enter a completely new field after you've just left one entire field behind you in that sense. But it can also be liberating to some extent if you understand that you now have the capacity to really decide for yourself what you want to do in the context of your of your field, obviously. Yeah. So those are the things that, that I have been struggling with or that I've been working with in the, in the transition from the PhD to the postdoc. And that's the things that have changed, really. Mindset being the one thing, how does one find that completely new field to move the academic attention to? In Jens's case, it, quote-unquote, only took a trip to Hawaii. I came across the subject while working on my PhD already. Um, at that time, I was doing research. Uh, on the context of Hawaii, and I came across preparing a research trip, and I came across a article in the New Yorker about um, the so-called High Seas Project, which is a simulation of a Mars habitat on Earth, and that was taking place on one of the Hawaiian islands, on Big Island, on the island Hawaii. And I first checked that article basically on because I was checking anything on Hawaii at that time, but I became fascinated with the question of why they chose particularly Hawaii as a site for that uh, habitation um, simulation. You could have done that anywhere on Earth, basically. And there were the article kind of outlined basically why Hawaii is a perfect spot for that. And that got me interested in the question of how space exploration, particularly Mars colonization as a subject, relates to specific places and the discourses that kind of surround that place on Earth. So what I'm interested in is imaginations of Mars colonization in contemporary U.S. American literature and culture, but also science and technology and basically everything else uh, in relation to climate change debate. I have a very broad understanding of text in this context. This is why I'm talking about imaginations more than texts. It's classic literature. It can be cultural phenomena. It can be legal texts. It can be science and technology as life writing texts. And I think a good example of that would be the Mars rover missions, for example, which, which I'm currently working on and which I also talk about a lot. The approach that I'm using here is a post-human studies, post-colonial studies, and a study of use imperialism approach, a little bit of eco-criticism, particularly also for, for the debates in planetarity. And what I'm interested in is, is to find out why and how Mars colonization as a narrative, as an imagination, emerged as a viable option for battling climate change. So what discourses and narratives does this currency rely on? What are the repercussions? And how does um, this notion of a multi-planetary human life relate to eco-critical debates about planetarity? That's, that's the focus, really. If you are new to the topic, you may need a bit of context on the whole master's course and its cultural history. And there's a really good book I can, I can recommend for anyone who's interested in this changing history, and that's Robert Markley's Dying Planet. Um, and he documents very well how Mars in particular served as a space of projection for different political projects, for, little, for different um, narratives and different notions of what the future of humanity should look like. And, and one of the, the most prominent and infamous, if you will, examples, historical examples of how Mars has been used as a space of projection 
as the well-known, I guess, um, moment in, in 1877 when an Italian astronomer called Giovanni Schiaparelli <laughs> observed Mars and observed what he des described as canali in Italian, which means channel, and, and describes a natural formation, really, which was translated into English as canals, which is a artificial formation. And then this idea was taken up by an American astronomer called Percival Lowell, who believed that this was the, the proof that intelligent life must have existed or still exists on Mars, uh, even though it just was just based on a mistranslation, if you will. And Markley in his book makes the point of outlining uh, and, and highlighting really that the fact that Lowell believed so strongly in this idea was impacted by the fact that at that time, canals, the building of canals, like the Suez Canal, was considered to be the peak sign of, of progress and civilization in that sense, right? And then this idea that a canal on Earth is a sign of, of progress was then projected really in this, uh, this discovery on Mars, right? And this is one example. This, and this idea persisted that there must have been a life on Mars until really the 1960s in some circles, until the Mariner missions, the uh, NASA Mariner missions, produced the first pictures of the Martian surface uh, and, and dispelled really that, uh, that idea that there can be any sort of life currently on Mars or has ever been any life on Mars. So there's some strong narratives and some strong imaginations there have been in the past that still exist today. And I think this particular moment in the history of these projections underlines nicely how science and imagination have intersected at various times when it comes to exploring and thinking about Mars. There's a, a prominent scientist who passed away a couple of years back called Carl Sagan who said when it comes to the exploration of space and Mars, there's always a delicate dance of science and science fiction. And this underlines that imagination and is a driving force in interplanetary science, right? But this sounds romantic, but can also be very problematic in that sense. And whether there is a kind of pivotal moment in, in the recent past, that's exactly what I'm interested in. When, when does this happen that the that Mars colonization becomes a currency, really, in this climate change debate. Where's the moment and where's that narrative produced and how is it circulated and how does it impact our projections on Mars? Now, with this bit of historical background, let's turn to the contemporary context of Jens's work. That is the question, what is Mars to us Earthlings? There are many different examples of how space technology impacts, basically, uh, the livelihoods of people here on Earth. Space exploration, in that sense, is a very terrestrial undertaking. For example, there is a lot of work being done on how the space industry connects to logics of colonialism. Um, other examples of this are how, for example, the construction of telescopes for the exploration of space in Hawaii and in other places does not necessarily benefit everyone equally. There seems to be a discourse at work that pits the needs, specific needs of a cultural, of a group, of an ethnic group against the benefit of all of humanity, right? And that's a very colonial thinking, a very colonial thought. And at the same time, this is happening right now, outer space has already been staked out as, as yet another space, really, for techno-liberal, capitalist and extractivist logics and desires, right? And all of this does not break up old structures, so humanity does not change because we go into space. I think that space exploration and also this, the industry and the technology behind it actually reinforces many of these old structures in that sense. Which illustrates that even in space, the so-called final frontier, questions of territoriality and colonialism continue. And I've argued in, in the past in my research that it, 
that this notion of different phases has served to veil the coloniality and imperialism of US expansion. It's a story that the United States tells about itself. There are very different phases that all in all are not colonial in any sense. In that sense, the United States are again considering themselves to be exceptional. Um, and based on my research so far, I think that there is no such thing as a face that is completely divorced from its predecessor. So the strategies change and adapt, but US imperialism at its core does not any, become anything else than imperialism, right? It disenfranchises, it removes, it sometimes kills black, indigenous, and people of color. And the interesting thing for me now is that space exploration has, not just in the context of Mars colonization, been presented for a while now as a tabula rasa, as a shedding of terrestrial structures and burdens. And Mars colonization as a narrative is also very much invested in that. These narratives talk about Mars as a utopia, as unifying for humanity. It even sells immortality for humanity. And the question for me is, what is now the hidden price of this narrative? Who pays it? Right? What does this new phase of US imperialism mean um, for those that are disenfranchised by it? The most prominent example, obviously, is, uh, is uh, Elon Musk and his well, campaign, really, to establish Mars colonization. And not just a viable option, but basically as the only option for humanity to survive the coming climate crisis. And he's not the only one. He's, kind of, he's, he's capitalizing heavily on this uh, narrative. He's a very visible public persona, so that's why a lot of focus is on him. But, but there's more of that in the off release. It is not only that discourses on space, Mars in particular as a place to start a new, maybe naive or look like egocentric projects of the super rich and mirror colonial discourse. This projection into space has an earthbound impact. In order to explain how narratives such as Musk's relate to disenfranchisement and to climate change, one can draw on, for example, Rob Nixon's eco-critical and post-colonial critique of slow violence. Nixon, and this is just one aspect of his work, famously argued that climate change has very different temporalities on Earth and the repercussions of climate change depend really on where you live on Earth, right? So you have a different understanding of climate change and the temporalities of climate change depending on where you're located. And I think that's right down the alley of, of Musk's idea of settling Mars on Earth to weather out climate change, for example, which is, again, obscenely elitist and also mundane and cynical because Musk basically argues if, you, if capitalism breaks Earth via climate change, all we have to do is find another place where we can sit this one out. And what he obscures by that is, of course, that this is not a viable option for everyone. It ignores the fact that climate change is not something that's happening in the future, not for everyone at least, but it's, it's a global phenomenon that has very different temporalities and impacts communities today. So what Musk basically and others who invest in this narrative argue is that the global north, which is statistically speaking less impacted by climate change today, has to show more solidarity with a different planet than with the glo global south, for example. And, and that's exactly, I think, right down the alley of Nixon's notion of, of slow violence and the different temporalities of climate change in that sense. Yet, instead of investing in stopping climate change, serious money flows into space. Reading Jens's work and talking to him, for me, recalled Frederick Jameson on capitalism and the end of the world as we know it. He once wrote, and I quote, It seems to be easier for us today to imagine the thoroughgoing deterioration of the earth and of nature than the breakdown of late capitalism. Perhaps that is due to some weakness in our imaginations. End of quote. 
And I wondered where Jens would locate this fault in the imagination. I think there's the simple fact that climate change is a social issue is, and that some people capitalize off inequalities and have invested in our societal structures and in capitalism at that and don't want to give up power and wealth. And with Musk, I think there's a strong tendency, if you look at his public persona and, and the text and the material that exists really about him, as a public figure, he's most invested in the idea of Mars colonization as a climate change remedy. There are other examples like the Dutch um, Bas Landstrup and his Mars One project, but Musk is the most visible one, obviously. Who sells multiplanetary humanity as a form of immortality? He peddles in this idea of Mars as, as a social utopia. And I've tried to explain that idea as a double redwashing, if you will. He sells that idea of Mars colonization both as a social remedy, but also as a remedy to climate change. And what it glosses over at the same time is that he has very not very altruistic business models on Earth. And what it also glosses over is that he has a very mundane goal of privatizing the space industry. That's what he's interested in. That's the way for him to achieve Mars colonization, the privatization of space industry. And what it also does, it also draws away attention from the fact that space exploration can indeed help us battling climate change. The study of atmospheric change on other planets like Mars help us understand how our atmosphere is changing at the time and, and can actually benefit our battle against climate change. And all of that is glossed over by this peddling of Mars colonization campaigns that Musk and other invest in. And I think so in that sense, what Jameson's quote here nicely underlines is that there are ways to imagine our future otherwise. And there, there have been areas in which this is already being done, like Afrofuturism and indigenous futures, to name just a few. And what we have to do is find ways of centering those. That's, I think, essential in, in the research in that area. What Jameson basically says, or what it underlines, is that if there is a lack of imagination, it's within Western Eurocentric cultures. And, and I think that needs to be centered more. Which begs the question, what consequences does drawing on alternative imaginaries have? Or, as Jens puts it, How can we imagine the future of humanity outside all of these colonial and capitalist imaginaries in that sense? And there are a number of scholars, activists, and also artists that argue that engaging in Mars colonization in a sustainable and anti-colonial way necessarily means not only thinking about how we can transform Mars, to make it habitable for humans, but also to first look at how practices of terraforming on Earth, of which climate change is the most extreme form, if you will, have impacted our planet. And there are projects that advocate, for example, the centering of non-human entities and materialities, and of course also the fundamental connectedness of human and non-human life. And every once in a while also people turn to concepts like environmental stewardship as, as conceptualized in some indigenous communities. And, and as you said, that there is a danger of how how can you make those concepts fruitful without repeating colonial and extractivist logics, right? Mining indigenous communities for their knowledge without addressing the colonial relations first. And I think mindfulness of one's positionality is essential for me personally also. I can't speak for or about um, indigenous communities in that way. But there is work by indigenous scholars, for example, who've talked about this this idea. And there's a, a particular, there's an article by an Aboriginal Australian author and scholar called Tony Birch, who wrote an article about Australian mining practices and its impact on Aboriginal communities, and how these communities are still willing to share ancestral knowledge about the environment to better engage climate change in spite of bearing the brunt of the fallout of climate change so far. And Birch also describes 
how this exchange of knowledge needs to be preceded by a careful creation of partnerships and alliances and a fundamental and sustainable transformation of the general society's really engagement with land, right? So the idea is fundamentally to first change how we think about our relation to Earth before we can think about our relation to Mars, and that in a sustainable and dialogic sense in that way. That's some of the challenges that need to be faced first before we can think about Mars itself. To think about Mars, is that too far-fetched for American studies in Germany? Well, the thing is, even though the topic might sound literally outlandish, it's not very much. It's very much rooted in well-established areas of research in American studies. So I'm standing on the shoulders of people in life writing, in eco-criticism, in post-colonialism, in transnational American studies, as well as the study of US imperialism. I'm also doing this, as I said, in conversation with other people because it's an inherently interdisciplinary project. Um, I'm currently collaborating with Alexander Ganser from the University of Vienna on a mobility studies perspective on Mars colonization narratives. I'm working at the University of Düsseldorf in collaboration with Regina Schober on, on artificial intelligence and technologies and also the colonialism and the coloniality of these technologies. And as part of my fellowship with the Academy of Sciences and Literature in Mainz, I'm also part of an interdisciplinary group called Humanity and Transformation, which explores extreme, and I'm putting this in quotation marks now, extreme spaces and how they impact our understanding of human life. And I'm working with people there in deep sea research and the philosophy of science with it, which is really challenging at times uh, because we speak very different languages. But all of this is necessary, I think, to relate to the subject and also underlines that there is a lot of work going on in that area already in American studies in Germany from very different perspectives, right? And bringing them together is part, part of the project. Could you recommend some literature for people who now have seen, <laughs> have seen Mars and want to get started? <laughs> yeah, well, yes. I mean, obviously, my book, when it comes out in 10 years from now, maybe. Um, but, but apart from that, there's a couple of, of really good books, not just focused on Mars itself, but also on the, on the, on the underlying discourse, if you will, right? And, and, um, I mentioned one of them already, and that's Robert Markley's Dying Planet, uh, Mars in Science and Imagination. It's an excellent book to understand not just the history, but also the history of Mars exploration, but also understand, as I said, this connection between science and science fiction in our projections on Mars, really. There's another great book by Lisa Messery, which is called Placing Outer Space, which is kind of an ethnographic book on how outer space is created as a place within the sciences that explore it in that sense. Another great book by Peter Redfield is called Space in the Tropics, From Convicts to Rockets in French Guayana. So he talks about the coloniality of spaces that are now spaces for space exploration. And that's an interesting book to start off. Another great book, which has been really helpful in my analysis of the Mars rover missions, is by Janet Vertizzi, which is called Seeing Like a Rover. How Robots, Teams, and Images Craft Knowledge of Mars. An interest, a really great book to understand also the technology behind the rover missions and also how, how different disciplines come together in order to make those missions work. It's a really interesting insight into that, into that technology. Another very, really influential text for me, um, especially on this question of the coloniality of technology in that sense, is a text by uh, Neda Anatazowski in Kalindivora, which is called Why the Sex Robot Became 
the killer robot, reproduction, care, and the limits of refusal, and they talk about the hidden costs, the invisible costs of technology in that sense. That's really interesting. And there's another great text by Alexander Ganze called, uh, it's a short text uh, called Astrofuturism in a book called Critical Terms in Future Studies, where she talks about exactly this current time where we're in, where we're in the new directions that narratives of space exploration have taken in the last, let's say, 20 years, for example. So it's also a great way to start to discuss all of that. With so many disciplines to draw on, we of course wondered who Jens would pick if he could talk to one person, dead or alive, about his project. Oh, wow, that's a really tough question. Um, I'm, of course, tempted to give a very academic academic and very also, in that sense, intellectual answer to that. But to be really honest, I'd really like to talk to Giovanni Schiaparelli and tell him what happened uh, in, the, in the two centuries after he first spotted canals on Mars. And I'd really like to see his reaction to the changing nature of our relationship with that planet over the last couple of, 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 of well, centuries, really. Um, yeah, I wonder how he would react and, uh, you know, maybe just sit there and be like, but, but that's not what I meant at all. <laughs> people... What would be, would be the emotion that I expect the most? Really, yes. <laughs> you people need to learn Italian. <laughs> <laughs> that's, always, that's always a good story to tell if, you, if, you, if people think about learning Italian. You should. You should absolutely do so. With these words, we now leave it to you. Whether that is researching space narratives, googling Elon Musk, learning Italian, or munching a Mars bar. We thank our interviewee, Dr. Jens Temmen, for his time sharing his ideas in materials with us. As always, it had been a pleasure working with him. We are also thanking Professor Nicole Walla for supporting us. And I want to thank you, Anja, for doing yet another episode with me. I love to be a part of this, always. Due to the pandemic and the restrictions this has put on our work, we are slower than usual in putting out episodes and would value input in the form of feedback and ideas even more. If you have any comments, queries, suggestions, Talking American Studies is on Facebook and Twitter and on Instagram and can be reached via email under talkingamericanstudies at postio.net. Of course, we'd be delighted out of this world if you added the podcast to your lists or liked it, or followed it, subscribed to it, shared it, or TikToked it, or whatever it is the young folks now do. And check out the other episodes on the various podcast platforms such as Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and so on, or the current homepage, talkingamericanstudies.buzzsprout.com. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode and... We'll listen in again. Bye. Was ist denn los? Kannst du der TikTok noch Google sagen? Ja, ich kann. Wie alt bist du? I'm not so. In zwei Semestern Lehre noch nie passiert, aber jetzt passiert es natürlich. Okay, so, um, so basically you sabotaged your Wi-Fi because I asked you to um, summarize your project in five sentences. <laughs> Exactly. The elevator pitch. I'm not really fond of it, but I'll try my best.